BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, welcome to a brand new week. We are on the edge of war with Ukraine. President Macron of France has uh, brokered a possible negotiation between uh, President Biden and President Putin. We'll see how that plays out. This is uh, not a good situation. And we're all hoping that I think I could speak for everybody that war doesn't happen terrible. Donald Trump rolls out his social media app and it crashes right away. We have a huge show today. We've got a crazy alert. Franklin Graham. Yeah, that guy. He's now wanting Americans to pray for Putin. Don't pray for America. Don't pray for Ukrainians. Don't pray for Biden. Pray for Putin. Right. Got that. Toxic masculinity is driving hate crimes, murders, and air rage. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's start out. I've been talking about this, this lack, this loss of agency that people have been feeling and the resulting rage. And, and, and also, the, you know, just the, the, this whole tone that Trump has set for the nation of, screw you, I got mine, I want it my way, nah, nah. you know, the trucker tantrum and all these other tantrums. And the latest tantrums, which, I, you know, I think are frankly deadly, are on airplanes. Uh, for people who are immune compromised, you know, they can choose not to go into restaurants. They can have stores delivered to them. But if somebody dies and they've got to go to a funeral or if they've got to travel for work, and they get on airplanes, and somebody's not wearing a mask, and they're, and, they're, and they're actively spreading COVID, it could be just as deadly as if a terrorist set off a suicide vest. So what do we do? Well, the flight attendants union is saying, we need to put these people who, who assault uh, flight attendants on a national no-fly list, whether it's the, the terrorist no-fly list that the Department of Homeland Security has, whether the airlines do it, or whether DHS does a separate one. Julio Rivera is with us, the editorial director of Reactionary Times, contributed to Newsmax, American Thinker, Max, American Thinker, and Townhall.com, uh, ReactionaryTimes.com, and on Twitter. Oh yeah, it's Julio. Hey, hey Julio, I get it. I, I understand that you think that uh, terrorists on airplanes should not be put on a no-fly list. Do I have that no, right? No, that's no, no, not at all. Listen, um, this is how I want to read this actually, because this this comes from the Washington Post of all places. But what it said was, um, before someone's placed on a no-fly list, the FBI. This is according to the FBI. There must be credible information demonstrating that the individual presents a threat of committing an act of terrorism with respect to an aircraft, the homeland. U.S. facilities or interests abroad, or is a threat of engaging or in or conducting a violent act of terrorism and is operationally capable of doing so. I think somebody who's going back and forth kind of in a, in a caddy way with a flight attendant about not wanting to wear their mask or, you know, sometimes people go too crazy. They might be in the middle of drinking a water and they just have the mask down for a moment. And if they're not actively taking a sip, you will get flight attendants. I fly a lot. And some of them are cattier than others. I don't think somebody like that should have the indignity, should have to suffer that to be put on a no-fly list because there's a lot of other implications with that. You know, if someone's on a no-fly list, it may prohibit them from getting a gun license. It may affect them on a background check with a job. This is where the slippery slope goes straight down. And next thing you know, uh, they're, they're, this is, I, I think, a, a real... Uh, a siege against individual liberties if they would take it that far over something as catty as wearing a mask. So, number one, you know, catty is typically an old male slur against women, I, uh, which is most flight attendants. Let's let's uh, 
Let's get past that here. Um, <laughs> of so, course, you would point that out. Yeah, it, it, uh, the, you know the, the but that's PC police here. Yeah, that's not I, how I meant you know it. I get it. And and but but um, so you, you read the law, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how spreading a deadly disease to and and I guarantee you on well, no, no, on, on every off, full airplane there are immune compromised people. How people spreading a deadly disease in fly. order people it, get tested? How they spreading. Fly. A deadly disease, uh, yeah, the tests aren't 100%, you know that. How spreading a deadly disease to the public on an airplane as a as an act, uh, as a political statement, which is essentially the definition of terrorism, you know, terrorizing a civilian population no, to achieve no, political no, ends. Um, how that isn't terrorism, but but let's, you know, I, I, you know to, to give you even a small amount of, Okay, I'll cut you some slack on this one, Julio. Why shouldn't the airlines create their own no-fly list and simply say collectively, you do this to one of our employees, you are never again going to get on an airplane? Well, that's a different set of rules. Listen, the, the airlines are private companies. If the private companies feel that they do not want to give service to certain individuals based on their prior behavior, I mean, it's no different than a bar you know, kind of blacklisting or banning somebody who generally comes in and and acts a fool and and creates a big disturbance. And if they don't want to serve that person anymore, that's their prerogative. And I think that, you know, for for the airlines to do it that way as well, that's um, that's not something I would necessarily be opposed to, but what are the thresholds? You know, what would what would someone have to do to actually get on that list? Because I know I, and I travel a lot. You know this, Tom. I mean, I live abroad. I'm always coming back and forth. I'm on airplanes, you know, like dozens of times a year. I've seen flight attendants that have their own behavioral issue and have their own problem with trying to play God and, and be, you know, bossy, you know, displaying Karen-esque uh, you know, um, behavior, you know, we don't want necessarily people to have to it's suffer as a result of that. Yeah. No, and I, no I'm not attacking women. No, I'm not I, attacking I, yeah, women. I get it. I get it. I'm sorry, sorry to pick on you. It's so it's like low hanging fruit. Um, yeah, but no, it's not. But, no, it's not. So, so, okay. So somebody walks into a bar yeah. and, you know, assaults a bartender, beats them badly, uh, you know, harms them in some way. The, the bartender calls 911. The police come. They haul the person off. They get convicted of felony assault. They are now effectively, I mean, they're not on a no-fly list, but, you know, they, they, can't, they can't own a gun. I mean, all those, all those things that you said worry you about being on a no-fly list also apply to somebody who commits assault on a bar. So, you know, can we agree that there needs to be a definitional boundary line here? Where, yes. Because there are some people on these. I mean, you, in the, just in last week, you had a guy who tried to open the door of the plane because a friend of his was filming him on his phone and they were trying to create a video that would go viral on TikTok. Well, uh, that's, you know, a, that's a guy's a maniac. It was an, anti, like it was an anti-mask, anti-vax yeah. crazy person who was trying to make a video that would promote anti-mask, anti-vaxism, and he literally put the entire plane at risk of, of you know, instant death. And, well, and shouldn't that guy be things. on the no-fly yeah. list? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you that. That guy committed a, an act which would merit being put on a no-fly list. But one thing I will tell you is once the plane's in the air, those, those doors cannot open. Oh, like I know that. that. You like know that. But, but, you know, the, the, the terrified passengers don't know that. Of course, absolutely not. And and in that instance, yes, somebody deserves to be placed on some kind of a list like that. But what I'm talking about is we've also seen other videos that have gone viral of people having disagreement with flight attendants and getting kicked off of the plane for not really doing much of anything other than just it was their pet peeve of that particular flight attendant, whether it was related to the mask, whether it was related to a child making noise and kicking somebody, kicking a chair and, you know, an out of control child or whatever the case may be. We always have incidents like that. I mean, I've been on a lot of flights in the last year where I've witnessed incidents going on between people back and forth. And generally it's about, you know, people don't want to be told or spoken down to by flight attendants. Everybody understands that we're living in the state of the pandemic. You know, at times people may either take off their masks to eat something and forget to put it back on or what have you. There's a threshold, and you mentioned that. What is the threshold? If there's a threshold where somebody actually gets physical, then yes, in those instances, or if somebody is, you know, intentionally coughing 
on people or you know trying to make a show out of it or something like that then that's something where it's a little bit borderline um but but we, you know we can't just go wholesale throwing everybody on a no-fly list because they had an argument with a flight attendant and that's what i worry about giving that much power to flight attendants julio i think you and i have achieved a rare moment of uh, more or less agreement <laughs> which solidarity solidarity brother. solidarity brother okay julio rivera reactionarytimes.com oh yeah it's julio on twitter Julio, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Tom. We'll be back with uh, your calls and your thoughts on these issues right after this break. I see I've got, uh, holy cow, two retired airline pilots. Stick around. We'll be right back. Lots of opinions coming. What are yours? Tom in Atlanta, Georgia, says you are a retired pilot here. You want to weigh in on this? Yes. I just tell you that kind of the difference when you see now, a couple months ago I saw where a pastor had hit a flight attendant, and then they talked about, well, they went to court and they got a misdemeanor and, you know, community service. And I thought, what a bunch of garbage. I had a uh, incident. I was flying to uh, Mexico City. I had uh, one of the pastors uh, hit one of my flight attendants, so they were not getting along. Uh, in the interim, we moved the flight attendant to another section of the airplane to de-escalate that. But mm-hmm. uh, when we landed in Mexico City, Standing in the jetway, there I counted there were nine SWAT team members with uh, assault weapons. Wow! And this poor guy, this poor guy knew he was in a lot of trouble. I mean, it was not playtime. Yeah. And they took him and they they searched him and this was all going on in the jetway. Handcuffed him and he was he was let off that airplane. And I know that he didn't get community service. I'm fairly sure of that. I'm just saying the reaction is a little bit different. We might have to get a little tougher on these people that are causing this problem. Let the word get out there, and and other people will take notice, maybe. Okay. And and the second second thing, I I just laugh every time when I hear uh, somebody tried to open the door. I want to meet that person that can do that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, there's this thing called air pressure, and, you know, in addition to all the, the, the mechanical stuff, you know, to prevent that. But Yeah, well, these are plugged doors, so they're yeah. actually designed to plug themselves into the, uh, into the fuselage going right. outward. So as long as you've got outward pressure, you're never going to open those doors. Yeah, you know, yeah, I get would, it. I get it. Tom, so thanks anyway, a lot for the um, call. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for did. listening to us on Sirius XM down there in Atlanta. Adam in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Adam, your thoughts. It says here you're also a pilot. Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, I'm no longer flying, but uh, I have a different perspective than Tom uh, because I have my complexion. Um, I look very Middle Eastern, so I've had numerous, numerous uh, problems with uh, flight attendants, even working as a pilot. And I'll give you two examples. For example, uh, do you know what jump seating is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So jump seats. It's it's for people who don't know, it's like the spare seat in the in the cockpit there. Right. But they made a rule where after 9-11, where if there was an open seat in the cabin, you could sit in that seat. And so I've had incidents where I've been traveling as an additional crew member on another airline. And for example, someone uh, was using their phone and stuff when the flight attendant told them to stop it. And I told them, and then the guy threatened me with physical violence and the flight attendants took the guy aside who threatened me. Because and you live in Eastern? Are you talking about during the, the 9-11 hysteria period or is this an yeah, ongoing this was, thing? This was between about 2005 to 2010. and. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just uh, they've they've uh, several times they've almost got me fired um, for I haven't done anything. Um, the the minimum uh, education to be a flight attendant is just a high school education, and some of them are very smart and come from different backgrounds and industries. But my point is, is it's incredibly easy to be put on some type of list. Yes. Yeah. Well, not then, then are you arguing, not- Adam, that there should be some sort of a, a judicial process, a uh, you know, a, a, a due process, process of law sort of thing, some kind of a hearing or something where somebody can defend themselves? Yes, exactly, and that's the essence of the Constitution: is that the government cannot act arbitrary, arbitrarily. Right. Yeah, that's the Bill of Rights. But I'm assuming that you also have had you know problematic passengers that you you don't think should be on airplanes again. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I stopped flying professionally in 2010, so I haven't had the experience with 
these people who've got into arguments and fistfights over maps and stuff. And if they do reach that, I do think some type of process should be put in place. But it's incredibly easy to be put on a no-fly list. Yeah. I can tell you that. Yeah. Just ask Ted Kennedy. Well, you can't ask him anymore. He's dead. But, uh, you know, yeah, he got put on one. Adam, thank you. Thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Interesting. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Karen in Portland. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? I had a comment about Julio in your conversation with him, and I was confused. What exactly did you agree with? in that conversation just because I heard a lot of denigrating that, that, of flight attendants. That, that there should, people who are misbehaving on airlines should be held to account, that some of them should probably be put on the federal terrorist no-fly list, but that the airlines should create their own no-fly list for people who simply engage in bad behavior. Okay, thank you for that clarification because at the end of the conversation, all I heard him do was denigrate women and flight attendants. He made that catcalling thing and then he yeah, called him out on it. Yeah, I appreciate Twice. that so much. <laughs> yeah, and then he made the Karenism, and I thought, why is yeah. he blaming flight attendants? Because really, we're talking about physical violence. We're not uh, just talking about when somebody forgets to put their mask on after yep. they drink water. Yep, agreed. So that was it. All right. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot, Karen. Morning. Great to hear from you. Jim in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi there, hi there. Yeah, remember what it was like to fly on Braniff International before deregulation? Now, that was something, you know. That, you know, I remember those days. But oh, let me tell TWA you. TWA uh, was amazing, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. And, and after deregulation, everything has just, like, a, like he said, like a subway. It's What are first-class seats right now used to be coach seats. You know? Right? I, I've seen people that put their feet on the tray table. It's just, yeah. it's like, it's horrible. But yeah. anyway, about the political thing. This, here's my, I, I'm a Democrat, I gave money, I busted my butt to get Kamala Harris and also Biden elected. I did not vote for a bunch of feckless losers. I want to know why Donald Trump and his family are not in jail. That is the only thing I want, and these people that are blowing off subpoenas, I'm sorry. These Democrats had better wake up. Chuck Schumer should probably be replaced. Yeah. These other, Garland... They should be calling for Garland's replacement immediately. I can't take this anymore. I don't think it's going to happen, and I am terrified. I get because it, Paul. This man is, yeah. I get it. No, I, I you know, you, you said it, and and I, I am pretty outraged too. I do think though that before November, you are going to see a hell of a lot of shoes dropping. Okay, Putin has uh, basically said we're recognizing these two regions that have people in them who are proclaiming independence from Ukraine. So basically trying to create two brand new countries. The question is, will he move tanks and troops into those two new countries that he has recognized? They are inside Ukraine. And if he does, and I'm betting he will, does that then trigger the swift and severe sanctions that President Biden and other Western leaders 
have promised in the event that any of Ukraine's borders are breached by formal Russian troops. This is the, uh, you know, bite-by-bite strategy. And this is going to really put the West in a tough spot because if they do the full reaction as if he had just fully invaded Ukraine, then at that point he has no reason not to fully invade Ukraine. Right? So if, if Putin goes in and says, okay, we're recognizing these two regions, basically the Donbass area, you know, this, this, this part of, of uh, western Ukraine, we're going to recognize these places and we're going to go defend them against the government that, that doesn't recognize them, Ukraine, then he has, in fact, breached the border. If the U.S. then dumps the sanctions on him, we have shot our, our, our shot. We've, you know, we, we have fired our big gun. And there's nothing behind that, 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 at least that has been announced, that I know of. And so at that point, Putin's got nothing to lose by taking the whole rest of Ukraine, since everybody's already said, no, we won't stop you. We're just going to complain and sanction you. On the other hand, and, and this has got to be the debate that's going on in the, in the White House, and they've got to have been getting ready for this for a while now. On the other hand, if, if the response from the Western allies, from NATO and the Western allies uh, and the EU is, okay, we're going to do limited sanctions against you, then those limited sanctions are probably, you know, I, I, as I've pointed out a million times on this program, sanctions almost never really have much effect other than stiffening the spine of the people who are being sanctioned. Look at Cuba. Look at Venezuela. I mean, Hugo Chavez loved our sanctions because he could blame all the problems he had in his country on us. Fidel Castro loved our sanctions because he could blame, you know, and, and Putin is in political trouble. He has been ever since the Naval, uh, you know, Alexei Navalny challenged him and, you know, probably had a very good chance of taking him down in the election. And so he po- tried to poison him and then he sends him off to prison. He's, he's got his back to the wall here, domestically. And, you know, there's nothing like a good war to make somebody popular, particularly if you're defending your own people. And there are a lot of Russian-speaking people in Ukraine during, during the time that that was part of the Soviet Union. One of Stalin's strategies was to distribute Russian, ethnic Russia, ethnically Russian people into all of the other countries that Russia or that the Soviet Union controlled so as to have people who were demonstrably, genetically, as it were, loyal to Russia in those regions. This is, this, is, this is one of those turning, this has the potential to be one of those turning point moments in history. Either it's going to be played out the way that President Obama did when Putin took Crimea, which is we're going to slap some sanctions on you and we're going to say, no, you know, bad, bad boy. Or Biden is going to follow through and the rest of the West are going to follow through with the severe crippling sanctions that they have talked about, in which case we could be a whole hell of a lot closer to something resembling World War III, or at least a war in Europe. And I don't have any advice for these guys on this. It's an unimaginably difficult situation and an unimaginably delicate one. And I don't want to be one of the voices out there who is chipping away at our country's power in this and and position. Let's see here, Anita in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Anita, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, make a comment about the thing about the Ukrainian uh, Russia crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I think Russia has to be held accountable, even if they just, you know, go into the Dunbar region. This is this is kind of like, first of all, this 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 stuff that they're saying about the Russian separatists and that the Ukrainian army is attacking, you know, um, the Russian separatists and the women and children have to be evacuated. This is all Russian propaganda. Yep. They have never been held accountable. If they are not held accountable, when even if they just go into that Dunbar region, they're just going to continue. It doesn't matter whether we put the sanctions in now. I mean, if they if they do that or if we wait till after they've gone all the way to Kiev, yeah. they have to be held accountable now. 
they weren't held accountable when they annexed the Crimea, and look where they are. I get what you're saying, Anita, and at a gut level, I completely agree. In fact, I would say that if you're looking for a historical analogy, uh, you know, when yeah. Hitler when Hitler annexed Austria, everybody was yeah. like, uh, you know, because the Austrians wanted to become part of Germany. That was actually a popular sentiment in Austria, not altogether, but you know, it was it was there. So the world said, oh, no big deal. And then, and then he invades Poland because he says that Poland is planning land. to attack him. Yeah, the Sudetenland. Yeah, exactly. I mean, every, every one of those steps, we said, well, it's just one step. And then pretty soon it's all out war. And I see that same kind of progression happening here. The, the, the problem and that I identified you know, before the break, and I just don't have an answer to this, and I, I, I will defer to people like Blinken and, and Biden who mm -hmm. uh, understand foreign policy a hell of a lot better than I do, is that if you use all of your sanctions right now against Russia for invading just the Donbass region, what do you do? I mean, aren't you just saying to him, hey, you might as well take all of Ukraine? I think they're going to do that anyway. I don't think. Oh, I, I think they will too eventually. Now. Yeah. No, I don't. I. You know, this we've just seen this story before. Yeah. And it's it's just. I mean, they even have lists of people they're going to put in camps yep. and torture. They're talking about journalists, LGBTQ people, any any dissidents, activists. Where have we heard this before? Yep. Nineteen thirty-eight. Really scary. We cannot allow him to you know turn into Hitler. Yeah, I get it. And, uh, and, and do not disagree at all. Thank you very much, uh, Anita. Fred in LaPorte, Indiana. Hey, Fred, what's up? I'll have to agree with what Anita said there and you did about this. I think it's going to end up in a shooting war, and I hate to see that. That's yeah. not why I called. Yeah. The end of February is coming close. That's when President Biden said he's going to make his nominee for the Supreme Court, which would be a black woman. I wonder what you think... Mitch McConnell is going to do, or I got up his sleeve, to stop this nomination, like he has the last two Democratic nominations, keep his nomination nominee from being elected. I think it's going to depend on whether the nominee is the basically corporate, friendly black woman that Lindsey Graham has endorsed and that Jim Clyburn wants Biden to pick, or whether it's one of the uh, other four candidates who are all clearly progressives. Uh, I think if it's a progressive, then you're going to see Mitch McConnell doing aggressive blocking. I think if he thinks that it might be another Clarence Thomas, he's going to be fine with it. So I, I, my, my opinion, Mark, Fred, is that, you know, it's going to depend on who he picks. But uh, your point is well taken. I mean, I think there's a very real possibility that, um, uh, particularly if it's a progressive, that he's going to try and hang on to that, although he's not running the Senate anymore. And, and he's the one who blew up the filibuster for the Supreme Court. We'll see how it plays out. This might be another mansion cinema thing. Okay, a few other things. We got a, 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 this insane crazy alert. Franklin Graham, this, this is what happens when you suck up to Donald Trump, who himself sucks up to Putin and to the Saudis and to the Emiratis and to the, you know, pick your dictators, right? Donald Trump loves them. They give him money, <laughs> of course. So, you know, Franklin Graham is getting money from the people who are supporting Donald Trump, and now he's tweeting, pray for President Putin today. Well, yeah, I, I could say, pray that Putin won't take us to war. But that's not quite what he said. Well, actually, I, I suppose it is. He said this. He said we, we need to pray that God will work would work in his heart so that war could be avoided at all costs. But but he didn't go on to say and pray for President Biden, pray for the United States. Yeah, I think was, if if nothing else, it was it was a, an unforced error. Number one. Number two, wanted to raise this question: How is the right dividing us to get more power? The the, the, the I, I find this fascinating. Rick Wilson, you know, an old Republican strategist who's now part of the, uh, the Lincoln Project bunch uh, group. I have a lot of respect for them, actually, uh, has come out and said that the, that the reason why so many Republicans in the United States, uh, some of them outspokenly, like Ted Cruz, yeah, truckers do it. Why these Republicans are going along with the, the trucker tantrum. And he said it's because it amplifies this notion that the elites can't be trusted, that government can't be trusted. It's another effort to destroy a democracy. 
This is what the Republican Party has become. It has become a faction, to quote James Madison in Federalist Number 10. It has become a faction that seeks only its own power and is willing to destroy its own country to get and maintain and hold on to that power and the wealth associated with that power. Rick Wilson says, uh, you know, I think speaking of the Canadian truckers thing and the one that's going to be coming to Washington, D.C. in time for, you know, in two weeks is the State of the Union address. And so now they're 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 starting one in Barstow, California, and they're going to drive across the country and show up in D.C. And trucking companies across the country are saying uh, we don't want our employees participating in this. We're not fans of this. But anyhow, Rick Wilson says, now it is just the objection to power, the objection to expertise, the objection to anyone they call elites. And he points out uh, Mark 325 you know, in, in the Bible where Jesus said, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And, and he points out that during World War II, keep in mind, leading up to World War II, we actually had Nazi rallies in the United States. The one in Madison Square Garden was the largest, and it was huge. I mean, you know, a hundred thousand or tens of thousands of Americans wearing Nazi armbands and giving the, the Hitler salute and saying, Heil Hitler. In, you know, I think it was 1939. I mean, we, you know, we went into war in the 40s. And so when the war started, that kind of went away and faded out. And uh, the government started running these posters that said, United we stand, divided we fall. And, and a fine thing it was. So how is the right dividing us to get more power? This is just another symptom of it, in my opinion. And, a, and a, frankly, a nightmare one. So there's a lot going on here and a lot to talk about. I also want to tell you about what Gavin Newsom is up to in California. I'll, I'll ping that on the other side of the break, and we'll pick up your phone calls. Here on the Tom Harbin program, speaking the truth to multinational corporations would really rather you don't know all about. Stay with us. We will be there. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Just wanted to flag uh, some, this is what's going on in California. And I think this is absolutely fascinating. And uh, Gavin Newsom is, is uh, becoming the stand-up Democratic politician uh, right now for America. First of all, he has announced the creation of a new state unit to combat misinformation, to combat lies. He came out, uh, this was, uh, I don't have the date actually, it was last week, it was one of the days last week. He came out and he held a press conference. He said, perhaps one of the great disinformation networks in America, One American News, is spreading a lot of misinformation about COVID. And then he went on to say, I'm not just referring to Newsmax or the primetime propaganda lineup at Fox News and all of their pundits that safely have been boosted, fully vaxxed, who continue to promote a lot of misinformation. Forgive me for being so pointed and candid. People are liter quite literally losing their lives. And then he went on to talk about this state trooper in Washington state who uh, quit his job rather than get vaccinated. And in his parting, uh, when he quit, he left a, a, a message on his on social media 
basically saying F you, actually he said kiss my ass, to uh, Governor Jay Inslee, to the governor of, of, uh, of Washington State. And it got him millions of views online. Then he got COVID and he died from it. And so the governor of California, Governor Newsom, points this out and says, you know, this is the guy that Laura Ingram said uh, had awakened a sleeping giant of vaccine resistance. He, he, I mean, he's calling her out. He is creating the Office of Community Partnerships and Strategic Communications, a brand new unit in the state government. And uh, he said, we, we put out this week a partnership of 250 media outlets. These myth buster videos in a, are being done in a culturally competent way to go after these, this misinformation. And we continue to ask these outlets promoting misinformation to stop. People quite literally have lost their lives because of that promotion. So number one, good on Newsom. He's, he's, he's pushing back on the lies in the media. That's amazing. More states need to be doing that. And number two, and in fact, maybe Newsom, once he gets his program running, maybe he can help expand it to other states. Number two, he has proposed, and, and California, the, the legislature, uh, apparently has passed a new bill based on the Texas law. Now, the Texas law, if you know, if you live in Texas, actually, if, even if you don't live in Texas, if you know that a Texas woman got an abortion, and you know who drove her to the clinic, or you know who paid for it, or you know who the doctor was, or who the nurse was, or who the receptionist was, you can personally sue that person for $10,000 under Texas state law for facilitating an abortion. So what Gavin Newsom has done is propose, and, and I, I don't believe it's signed yet, but you know, put before the legislature a law that says if you know of somebody who owns a gun or sold a gun in violation of California law, and California has some strict gun laws, you can sue that person for $10,000 and lawyer's fees. He's using the same Texas, you know, basically kind of bounty hunter thing against guns. And if this passes, again, the, his anti-right-wing uh, you know, right -wing lie uh, commission has not yet come into being, but he announced it last week, and he announced this last week as well. He said, we'll see how, and, and, and he said, you know, if Texas can use a law to ban a woman's right to choose and put her health at risk, we can use that same law to save lives and improve the health and safety of people in the state of California. They opened the door. They set the tone and tenor of the rules. And either we can be on the defense complaining about it, or we can play by those rules. And we are going to play by those rules. He then added, we'll see how principled the U.S. Supreme Court is. And the Firearms Policy Coalition, which is a uh, public, you know, gun safety group in California, uh, excuse me, a, a gun, a, a pro-gun. We want more guns, more dead people. Firearms Policy Coalition said that they have pro they're promising a legal battle. They said, if Texas succeeds in its gambit here, New York, California, New Jersey, and others will be not far behind in adopting equally aggressive gambits to not merely chill, but to freeze the right to keep and bear arms, says their attorney, Eric Jaffe, in a legal brief on behalf of the group. Interesting. So, uh, you know, by the way, Newsom has banned ghost guns, ghost gun kits, and 50 caliber bullets, which are, you know, pretty big things and do an enormous amount of damage. So what's it going to take for other, other states to do this? And one last point, and then I'll pick up your phone calls on the other side of this break. I got an email from Indivisible this weekend, and they are, they've got a new campaign, indivisible.org, and they are asking you and me to contact the White House and say, we want climate action and canceling student debt through executive action, by executive order. We are tired of waiting for Congress. You can do this stuff, Joe Biden, do it. So let me just pass that along to you, I agree. And you can also call your members of Congress because uh, particularly senators, they, but even members of the House can lean on the president. When the White House gets a call from a member of Congress, they take it very seriously. Let them know. Climate action and canceling student debt. To the Tom Hartman program. Back with your calls. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, just a, before the break, I suggested that we should all be reaching out asking uh, President Biden to take executive action on both climate change and canceling student debt. 
he has already done really significant stuff on climate change. I mean, literally dozens of actions that he's taken, very positive actions in, in most cases. There are a few that are a little backwards, but... And one of them was saying that when the government authorizes any kind of, basically anything, you know, construction projects, uh, um, uh, anything involved with mining or drilling or uh, fossil fuel production, it has to take into consideration what's called the social cost of, of, the, of the carbon. In other words, it's how this carbon is going to change the environment and how the environment is going to, you know, cause disasters and things like that. Well, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Louisiana just blocked the Biden administration from doing that. I mean, just, just, just now. And uh, which is throwing the whole federal government into chaos because all the, you know, they, they've paused all of the oil leases. They're pausing everything because now they've got to come up with a different formula. They are going to appeal this. And I'm, get, and I'm guessing that that federal judge will be, that that Trumpy judge will be overturned on appeal. But maybe not. Ten states are participated in this lawsuit. The attorneys general from ten Republican-controlled states, and the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and some of the other right-wing organizations associated with petrobillionaires and and big massive oil companies, um, they are all over this, saying that the federal government should do nothing about emissions and or certainly not do it in this way. So that's that's the latest on what's going on. So let's pick up your phone calls here. Mark in Clinton, New York. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. First time caller. I uh, really appreciate you and everything you do. There's an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists from the 18th by uh, Susan D'Agostino about... Now, uh, hang on just a second, Mark. Report. The Bulletin of the uh, Atomic Scientists, that's the group that has the, uh, the clock They're going to midnight. The dooms- Doomsday, Doomsday clock, clock. Right. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so they, they, it's been, I think, two minutes to midnight for a while now, yeah. which is the closest it's been. It was even in 1984 or 6, so it, it was like six minutes to midnight. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, So they're reporting a, a Ukrainian commander saying that Russia may encounter a resistance uh, army of civilians if they, you know, enter the Ukraine. And the commander is reporting that there's ordinary citizens who are in this movement, but it's sponsored by a far-right group, Azov, which has been accused of harboring neo-Nazis and white supremacists, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's totally understandable these people would fight for their homeland. And, you know, I really can't stand Vladimir Putin. But I think in some ways it's being expressed without a lot of nuance in the media because people are anxious to go to war with Russia or to have another insurgency. I I doubt anybody's anxious to go to war with Russia, but I agree (laughs) that people don't understand the nuances of the region. They don't understand the the old Stalinist resettlement policies that are now coming back to haunt the democracies like Ukraine. They they don't understand what's what's been going on in the Donbass region, or for that matter, what was going on in Crimea. Oh boy, we're getting cut off. Stravidis, who's an old uh, NATO commander, is looking forward to such a fight because he, they don't understand how much experience we have with insurgencies. And my, uh, to my point was that uh, look at what happened to us in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think that may well be what's going to happen to, to Russia. Listening to Tom Hartman. You know, the, the big question is, is Putin going to pull off something like in Crimea where he, you know, pull it off? Or is it going to be more like Afghanistan? We'll find out. Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, says you disagree with me about what? Good morning, Tom. It's not so much a a disagreement completely, like like 100 percent. I just have been hearing people talk about we should hold Russia accountable and, you know, sanction them. And this thing with the list of people who they have of putting them in prison or possibly executing them. I just see that, you know, the United States, we've done the exact same things, the lead-ups to war, the misinformation. And Does that make it right? Lack, no, it, does, it doesn't. And that's what I'm trying to say, that, you know, when we do something, people really don't hold us accountable, especially the international, international community. community. There's yeah. no 
yeah, there's no sanctions put against us. No, we should have gotten nailed you know, for Iraq. Here. And and I mean, this is the problem that, that Tony Blinken is is dealing with. It's why he had to modify his speech to the United Nations last Thursday, or I think it was Thursday, maybe it was Friday, where he said, you know, I know that in the past we have brought you intelligence that uh, did not pan out. And he was obviously referring to you know, Dick Cheney and Colin Powell lying through their teeth about what was going on. At, at the time, apparently, Powell didn't realize he was lying, but Cheney certainly knew it, and Bush certainly knew it, lying through their teeth about U.S. intelligence. But then he added, but I'm not here to start a war. I'm here to try to prevent one. So, I, you know, I think the circumstances are somewhat different, Eric. Somewhat different, but it's still hypocritical because I think if we hadn't done all these wars in the, uh, to begin with, then we, we would have some sort of moral standing, I agree. you know, to to say these things. You know, I think. But just because you've screwed uh, up in the past, or other administrations have screwed mm-hmm. up in the past, doesn't mean that you don't take a stand for what's right in the present. Totally agree. Yes, I just wanted to say that. Let's all think about what Russia is talking about here, because I think we're missing a big point of this is the NATO expansion towards their borders. And we, I don't think this is know, about the, that. The, I did think that weeks ago, but I don't think this is about that at all. I think this is about Vladimir Putin trying to restore the Soviet Union, the, the greater Russia. He just took Belarus. I mean, you know, and didn't fire a shot. He moved 30, 40,000 troops into Belarus. Lukashenko said, okay, fine, you can come in here for a couple of weeks for your conflict with Ukraine. And then Putin on on Friday said, we're going to stay there indefinitely. In other words, we just took Belarus. Um, You know, before that, he took uh, South Ossetia. He took Georgia. um, He took uh, the Crimea. Uh, you know, the Crimean Peninsula, and, and now he's going after the Donbass. He's, he's, he's eating territories around him trying to reestablish the old Soviet Union. And Poland and Hungary are starting to get very nervous. Hmm. Do you think that it's because he's trying to establish a buffer between NATO and, and no. his border? I mean, no. trying to push them back? No, he doesn't need a buffer. I mean, what- you know, people who try to compare uh, what's going on in Europe to say, you know, if, if Russia was putting weapons in Mexico, wouldn't you be freaked out? That's a BS com- comparison. There, France has missiles that can land in Moscow. Moscow has missiles that can land in France. I mean, you know, arguing about a border as a buffer zone is so 1920. You know, it's like, yeah, but sorry. They're, we, but they're we, not saber rattling like we are, though. I, we're not saber rattling. We're, we're sanctions rattling, which is a whole hell of a lot less effective. That's the problem. Eric, thank you. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I wonder if this, this really applies to everything you've been talking about, except I think the Russians are, you know, they're contributing to this bifurcation in America. Look, the French have moved their command over to Niger. And the reason why it, it, the, the government of Mali has said that the French and the, the coalition forces are not doing enough to stop al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. They're not doing enough to stop terror. They've invited in Wagner Group, Russian mercenaries. This whole thing goes back to Mike Flynn. And what, look, there's this idea of we need to take the gloves off. The Muslims are barbarians. They don't share our values. It goes back to Ron Paul in this letters, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, letters of mark and reprisal. Mercenaries are the answer. Mercenaries can take the gloves off and do things conventional militaries can't. All that is not American in my opinion, Tom. And I'm only telling you this because you inspired me last week with that comment. You said you don't want to leave this country. You want to stay and fight for it. And I was really inspired by that. In my opinion, it's not American to kill people over religion or race or anything like that. Yeah, well said. Thanks a lot, Dave. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette and the Age of Revolution by Mike Duncan. And this is from Chapter 13, Reign in Paris, Dateline 1789, which would be the year I believe the Constitution was ratified in the United States. At 11 o'clock in the morning on July 15, 1789, King Louis XVI appeared in the main assembly hall of the Hotel de Menu Placiers 
please forgive my terrible French pronunciation, Du Roy, to address the National Assembly. There was no pomp or ceremony, no entourage, no protocol, no haughty reminders of his divine authority. He was flanked only by his two brothers, the Comte de Provence and the Comte de Artois. He wore neither robe nor crown. He did not sit to address his subjects and certainly did not lie in a bed and fall asleep. When he spoke, the king addressed the delegates for the first time as the National Assembly, a phrase he usually avoided. Then he read a list of peace offerings. To end the immediate crisis, he announced the withdrawal of all troops from Paris. He also promised to recall Jacques Necker to the ministry, reform the criminal code, abolish corvée labor, and ban judicial torture. To win over the National Assembly, Louis promised to recognize the nation's right to send delegates to a regularly convening assembly that would share responsibility for government with specific power over taxation and state budgets. These were all measures the king had previously resisted. Obviously, things had changed. Lafayette knew exactly what had changed. The cause of the people triumphed when the Bastille was taken, he said. And though the king addressed himself to the National Assembly delegates, it is clear the people were the authors of their own triumph. Lafayette and his friends tried for years to extract the reforms the king now promised. But the king did not meet their demands until the people of Paris rose in uncontainable revolt. It was an early example of a recurring revolutionary dynamic. The Salon revolutionaries only achieved their objectives by leveraging the danger posed by the street revolutionaries. Would the king have offered his list of concessions on July 15th absent the fall of the Bastille? No. But when faced with the loss of all his authority, the demands of liberal reformers in the National Assembly seemed tame by comparison. To transmit the wonderful news, the procession of assembly delegates filling 40 carriages departed for Paris. At their head rode the two most popular and well-known leaders. The astronomer turned president of the National Assembly, Jean-Sylvain Bailey, and the hero of two worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette. Upon arriving in Paris, they proceeded to the Hotel de Ville, where Bailey read the King's concessions to a hall packed with Paris electors, National Assembly delegates, and other observers. Bailey's speech concluded to shouts of, Vive le Roy and Vive la Nation! The Paris electors, now declaring themselves the legitimate municipal council of Paris, elected Bailey the first ever mayor of Paris. Then they turned to Lafayette and appointed him their leader of their improvised citizen militia. The record of the meeting reported, quote, all voices joined together to proclaim Monsieur La, Le Marquis de Lafayette commander general of the Paris militia, end quote. The report continued, quote, Monsieur Le Marquis de Lafayette, accepting this honor with all the signs of respect and gratitude, drew his sword and took an oath to sacrifice his life for the preservation of precious liberty. One of the leaders of the Paris Council, Médéric louis Ali Moreau de Saint-Marie, rose and said he was thrilled. The defense of French freedom could be entrusted to the illustrious defender of the freedom of the new world, he said. Moreau de Saint-Marie would know he came himself from that new world, born and raised in the Caribbean colony of Martinique. He was leader of an influential lobby defending the rights of French Caribbean plantation owners most especially blocking all efforts to abolish slavery for the next four years. He proved it was not just Anglo-Americans who overlooked the hypocrisy of liberty and slavery when it suited their interests. Lafayette's appointment to lead the Paris militia marked a major transformation in his life, career, and role in the National Revolution. Though he never resigned his seat in the National Assembly, Lafayette's time would now be spent serving as Commander General of the National Guard. This job demanded he simultaneously defend liberty and preserve order. Walking the line between liberty and order became the defining challenge of Lafayette's life. It was a treacherous path, taking him first to the peak of glory, then leading him off a cliff to his doom. Lafayette was not blind to the difficulties posed by his new assignment. That afternoon, he faced an opening test. A self-proclaimed militia captain from the Cordelier district, a particularly radical neighborhood in the left bank, led a company of armed volunteers to inspect the Bastille to ensure it was properly secured for the people. Upon arrival, the militia captain challenged the credentials of the official appointed by the Paris Council to supervise the fortress. After an unsatisfactory exchange, the militia company arrested the official and hauled him back to the Hotel de Ville, 
to see if his story checked out. Lafayette set the official free, chastised the self-appointed militia captain, and ordered him to return to his district. The book, Hero of Two Worlds, by Mike Duncan. Brian in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Brian, thanks for listening to KTRC. What's up? Hey, good afternoon. I don't think most of America really understands that Vladimir Putin is more of a mafia don than anything else. Many serious people believe that he's amongst the richest people in the world. And the reason he got so rich is because he extorted all the oligarchs in Russia. And it's kind of scary if you really stop and think about how many countries, influential countries, on our planet are ran by criminal organizations, like, say, Saudi Arabia. How about that country? Uh, a man who ordered the murder of a journalist. Um, you know, we could name, uh, how about the Philippines? Uh, China is Xi Jinping a criminal? Look what he's doing to the Uyghurs. And so I think shame. our media, I'm sorry. But anyway, I think our media doesn't want to go there. Well, this is this these are the these are the choices, Brian. It, you either have a a democracy that is answerable to the people, which arguably we had up until Citizens United. Um, you know, when what the people wanted was typically put into place. Um, and, and most of the other advanced democracies of the world, the other 33 members of the OECD have, or you don't. And when you lose that accountability to the people, you become accountable to essentially nothing. You become accountable to great wealth and great power and great wealth. You know, what's the old saying behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. Russia had for about a year in that first year with Yeltsin, when he was first elected after, after uh, uh, what's his name, stepped down. Um, they had what you could describe as a democracy. And we sent over the Chicago boys and said, we're going to do neoliberalism and we're going to privatize the whole country instantly. And, you know, it had failed in Iraq and it had failed in, in uh, well, actually Iraq hadn't happened yet. It had failed in, in Chile when they tried it. And, and the efforts that they had made here had failed. And they thought, this is going to be our proof that neoliberalism is wonderful. And they did this rapid privatization where everybody in the country got coupons. You know, if you lived in an apartment, you got, an, you got a coupon that you know, re reflected sort of the value of your apartment or your share in all these different public goods. And people went around and started buying up these coupons. And, and you know, basically, this is how the oligarchs of Russia were born. And it was predictable. When, when Russia adopted this. This is why China in 1988, 89, and uh, 1987, excuse me, 86, 87, 88, had this two-year debate about do we go neoliberal, do we do that, or do we, do we go uh, use the Alexander Hamilton's American plan and, and, and follow basically the policies of, of Hamilton and George Washington and whatnot, you know, in, and uh, protect our domestic industries and, and become a, a manufacturing powerhouse. They rejected neoliberalism explicitly. This is all in my next book. I've been doing this research recently. Um, Russia didn't, sadly. You know, uh, Yeltsin was like, cool, you know, bring it on. And as a result, you've got this, you know, Russia has become an oligarchy. Hungary is an oligarchy. Poland is leading, leaning in that direction. India has become an oligarchy, essentially. And oligarchies are virtually, by definition, criminal organizations. Or, you know, or at least not... I mean, you know, they're not, not necessarily criminal by the laws of their country, but if you, if you assume that, that the laws of democracy around the world are, and I, which is a huge assumption, right? I'm, I'm, I'm making the assumption that right. our form of government, at least if it were operating without the Supreme Court saying billionaires can own politicians, that our form of government is the best form of government. And I, I tend to agree with the old Churchillism, you know, that uh, democracy is the worst form of government. But, you know, except well, for all the others. Yeah, except for all the I can't remember the exact quote, but where's that effect? Um, but, uh, you know, what what do we do? So, uh, man, I, I don't Can I make I, one other quick point. Yeah, very, very quickly. You know, please. Well, back in the early 70s, Nixon and Kissinger's strategy was to try and divide the Soviets and the Chinese, which they successfully did. Right. But now we find ourselves where they're beginning to realign themselves again. Right. They have mutual interests. Yep. I mean, depending on how things work out in Ukraine, uh, that's going to influence heavily on what happens with Taiwan. Right. And that mutual interest is China, we it will don't. Be the hugest economy in the country or right. the world. Exactly. And the mutual interest is we don't want to be accountable to our citizens. And that's a problem. Thank you for the call. Tom in Seattle. Hey, Tom, what's up? Hey, Tom. Um, yeah, I was um, I was thinking that the only way that um, 
U.S. and Europe can exert pressure on Putin is to have Ukraine join NATO immediately. Um, because uh, if he if they're going to go ahead and invade anyway, um, then uh, you know they're ignoring the sanctions. The sanctions are useless. Well, so we're dancing up only- toward the edge of war here, Tom. But I but I you know one kind of compromise might be okay, Russia. You take Donbass, you take the western part of Ukraine, and on that same day, the rest of Ukraine becomes part of NATO. Yeah, that would potentially work. But, but um, it's very easy for me to glibly say that, sitting here, you know, safely in the United States, you know, with nobody exactly. pointing and, cannons and you at me. think Putin would go along with that? I mean... Oh, he, he would be outraged, of course. But, he, you know, I think anything yeah. that we did that, that involved protecting Ukraine is going to produce outrage. But I, but I think, yeah, I, don't, I think if we don't have them join NATO, we're just throwing them under the bus. Because I think you, you stated uh, earlier that... Um, that the real goal here is regaining uh, former territory of the the Soviet Union. Well, Putin and, said that um, twenty years ago. That's the the goal of uh, Putin and his his KGB buddies that he's surrounded with. Well, it's you not know, just the KGB. It's it's the whole oligarchic structure. You know, it's it's uh, 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 and 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 frankly, a lot of people. I mean, you know, Putin is a nationalist. He's a he and 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 he knows how to play to nationalist sentiments. And he's using religion. He's using, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church, um, you know, and there's conflict around that in Ukraine. He's using ethnicity. He's using language. He's using all these tools. And it's, it's going to be really, really hard to stop those things. These are these are powerful, powerful weapons, uh, social and political exactly. weapons that yep. other dictators or oligarchs or whatever you want to call them, strongman leaders have wielded in the past, using this stuff against Indians. Uh, it's not new. Anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, take You've been your listening end. to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.